Hello folks, my name's Igor and I'm an Agile practitioner and the host of Product Corner podcast. And I'm pleased to be joined today by co-founder of Dare IT, Natalie Pilling. Dare IT is focused on women diversity problem in IT and they are helping women to start a career in software or in general IT industry through the mentorship programs. So Natalie, it's good afternoon to you and nice to have you today. Hi, Yair. It's, it's really nice to be here. It's a pleasure to, to have this chat today. So uh, before we start, I just want to ask you how actually your today's morning started. How many cups of coffee have you already enjoyed today? I, I'm on the coffee detox right now. It's very hard. Okay. So I've switched to tea. And I've had at least five cups of tea, of green tea. So uh, I'm fully energized. <laughs> okay. And, and like your morning started at? Today, my morning started at seven. So uh, actually, it's a little bit later than usual. In the summer, I like to wake up with the almost with the sun. But yeah, I've been up and running since seven today. Yeah. Yeah. 7 a.m. It's impressive, actually. So that's great. And uh, for me, actually, it is hard to start morning at, I don't know, 6. So 7 a.m., 7.30, it is my, you know, breaking point uh, when I actually um, get up from the bed. Uh, okay, so uh, I have a question uh, regarding your career. So I would like to start with this. And um, I saw your profile on LinkedIn and like I've just go through your career path and I'm really interested in how did you get to the CEO position without, you know, 15 years of experience working in this company. So it looks like you work a few years uh, in several companies and then you just uh, started your work uh, in El Passion as a COO and then as a CEO actually. So yeah. Any tips? How did you get there? And uh, was the education helpful in this case as well? Uh, absolutely. So I was boiling it down on one hand to uh, education. I know you wanted to hear a little bit more about my studies at HEC Paris. So maybe we can dive into that a little bit later because that definitely helped. And then the kind of career path I took after finishing my master's studies um, I would say I can't tell you much about uh, corporate life or only from the perspective of a starter because this is where I worked before doing my master's. But after going, um, after finishing my master's, I went into the startup scene. I was working in very early companies, stage companies, where I got a lot of responsibility from very, very early on. And I was, as I like to say, pushed into the deep end of the pool. And I think this is definitely what helped me to progress very quickly. Uh, I would say it was riskier or associated with more risk than the kind of pre-laid out path if I had joined a consultancy or a corporate uh, environment. But I also know that because from the beginning I was literally, I sat down and they were like, okay, you're going to be in charge of, I don't know, building up the whole HR processes and systems and I had never done this before so uh, you know I, I had to learn to be very hands-on and to figure things out and to take on a lot of responsibility I got to build a team I got to recruit people so that kind of set me on a path that I was looking or also uh, comfortable with taking on tasks and responsibilities that were new to me so I think this really helped me to to progress and to be honest, a little bit of luck as well, or luck or unluck, as you might want to call it, <laughs> because uh, I don't know if you know the story of how I became CEO at El Passion, actually. <laughs> so this is an interesting one, uh, because I I first, uh, I was recruited as a chief growth officer, so I was going to be responsible for sales and marketing in the general company growth. And then once I handed in my resignation, my job in Berlin, uh, had a two month notice period. After a month, I get a, I get a text message. Hi, Natalie, uh, your current CEO of Passion just resigned. Uh, would you like to still come to work at the company? And uh, well, I said, well, what other choice do I have? I'll give it a try. I will come. 
So one of my first tasks out of passion was actually to prepare together with the leaving CEO and the remaining C-level you know, announcement to the company that the CEO was stepping down and we didn't have a replacement yet or there was no plan yet how to, how to go about that. And uh, because of my, I would say because of my skills or like part of the business that I was supposed to take over, so sales and marketing, but also my knowledge in, let's say, more finance strategy uh, aspects, I ended up taking on a lot of responsibilities that the previous CEO had. And I, I guess I was doing a decent job. So then after a few months, the shareholders asked me uh, whether I wanted to step into the CEO position. So... Uh, as I said, it's a bit of a combination of being okay or looking to put myself into a situation that I'm not comfortable in or that are new to me, but a little bit of luck, uh, or as I said, unluck, maybe, uh, yeah, as being well. in the right time, in the right place. Exactly, exactly. And uh, maybe I can expand a little bit about the education, because I know that was something that um, you were curious about. Uh, definitely the masters I did in uh, Paris was very useful and one thing that I really appreciated is that it was extremely practically oriented so most of what we did actually was case studies and what it taught me is that there is no clear answer to things it's always different like one problem different solutions different approaches and because for instance we had case studies we were we were split into groups and everyone had to come up with their suggestion on how to solve this real life problem so uh, apart from exposing me to different kind of problems different kind of industries it also taught me that well yeah there is not a right or wrong answer like a you know multiple choice uh, question where you you need to tick but you have to think in different ways and it also gave me an introduction to startups and social business which i now influenced my later career path also with uh directly. yeah you know that that's cool it looks like you've been thrown to the trenches um you know to be in ceo and it was a lot of responsibility for you wasn't you afraid of this wasn't it you know like wasn't you scared that you will be responsible for such you know huge amount of people definitely now i can say it at the time you know i had to appear very confident and you know i knew what i was doing uh, but of course i was extremely scared um i one of the reasons why i had uh, come to to el passion and took the c level role i wanted to take a c level role but i was also excited to work with somebody in a ceo position from whom i could learn and now i was suddenly in the situation where of course there's a lot of people who, from whom i can learn but the okay. i had nobody to learn from as a CEO position. So that was extremely scary. And also, you know, I was 27 at the time, so also new at the company. So I was wondering, like, will people trust me? Will they follow me? Will will I be able to do it? Uh, and in the end, I, I decided to take it. And frankly speaking, there was a very practical reason for that, is that I realized that um, if I had said no, because yeah, if I had said no, it would have meant that uh, we would have been looking for another CEO because actually uh, Carol and or Grzeszek, uh, the other two C, uh, C-levels or CTO and CEO, they, they, they expressed they didn't want this position. So it meant we would have had to look for extern an external person and I knew it would take at least six months, at least. And I would continue in this time taking like a semi-CEO role and then somebody else would come and I would have to step down or I would have to step aside or I don't know. So I decided, you know what, I will just try it because at least I will do it officially. I will think of it as a permanent thing and I will just basically give it, give it a try and trust my skills. And uh, I okay. think it, it, uh, it worked out okay. <laughs> yeah. And I know that there is uh, right now uh, a lot of uh, open positions. Uh, for the CEO role in a lot of companies. So, you know, they're just uh, looking for some external person rather than promoting someone. And it is, I think, quite um, often practiced right now. Um, do you have any tips like how to build trust and how to build um, relationships 
with the people that when when you are stepping in into the company as a CEO, as a new CEO. So yeah, maybe you have some tips and uh, helpful tricks how to do this. So I would say that I had a advantage slash disadvantage. So I came into the company not as a CEO. I came in as a different role, which was a new role. Okay. So I didn't have anyone to be compared to. That's the first thing as the CGO role. So I could create this new thing by myself. And the second thing is that before when stepping into the CEO role, I already had a few months of uh, working with people and showing them a little bit more about my working style, how I think, who I am, what my values are. So that definitely gave me um, a head start. And I think this is the most difficult part when you're coming freshly uh, directly into the CEO role that you need, effectively, you need the company employees, people to trust you or at least give you the benefit of the doubt. And then you need to prove yourself in a way. Uh, well, I had this advantage that at least they knew a little bit about me before. So that was definitely okay. that still, uh, I still had to show them to trust me in the CEO position. So my tactic was always to let my actions speak rather than my words. So to show them, um, again, what my values are, what I, that I'm a hard working, uh, person who has the interest of the company and actually employees at heart and that yeah basically that i'm a i what values i have also as a person and what is important for me when running a company of keeping it a un, not too hierarchical uh like a unhierarchical organization being open to people and things like that the good thing is that my my values are very much in line with the values of our passion in general before i joined joined that so that of course uh, that of course helped what was a little bit challenging, I have to admit, is that because I joined the company and in the beginning I was working on the same level as a CTO and COO, and then suddenly when I took the CEO role, technically I was their boss, right? So that was a little bit challenging to kind of, and I was the latest one to join the company. They both had been in the company for many, many years. Uh, and I have to give them big kudos here. They, they, accepted me they supported me and this was uh, it was really good working relationship but i know that in on my end it was sometimes challenging to be okay with the fact that like, i needed to be okay with the fact that i was a new newly arrived and we were working together or at least on the same level before and technically now i'm the last uh, decision maker so that was a little bit more challenging which i think you don't have this problem when you come directly in as a ceo but in the yeah, end, I yeah. think this problem, any manager, like if you're a team member and then you become a manager of that team, you will always have this problem, right? Yeah, because if you already build some rela friendship relationships with those people, you will feel a bit of uncomfortable, let's say. Exactly. I think that we can jump into the next topic for your current position, actually, because it is, I don't know, how many months already you've been there in their IT? Uh, I full-time since the end of last year, so it's a bit more than six months. Okay, okay. So, yeah, just a few words about this company. And I understand that you've like founded this company a few years ago already, but the most activity was started not so long time ago, right? Correct, correct. Um, yeah, I mean, our general mission, and you mentioned this already, is to increase the representation of women at all stages of, let's say, from junior to leadership in the IT industry. So that's that's our mission. And uh, some thoughts of like, why why am I doing this? Why, what made me what made me get there? To take a little bit a step back. So I, for a long time, I wanted to start and run my own company. So when I when somebody would ask me. I don't know, 10 years back, like, what's your ultimate goal? I always, I kind of had this idea, well, for sure, I would like to run a company and I would like it to be my own. At the same time, I've always been attracted to mission-driven organizations and in particular to this concept of a social business. So a business that has a positive impact on society. Mm, I really like the idea of using entrepreneurship, business thinking, 
basically business to solve problems and to solve social problems. So um, that's kind of the premise. And then their IT kind of came along or we started it three years ago. So when I stepped down from Alpashen as a CEO last year, it's mm-hmm. not that I just stopped and I started something else from scratch. I basically went into a project that we had started before. And uh, so we started this uh, project three years ago with my co-founder, Alexander Bis, who I also knew from El Passion, actually. Uh, and we started okay. it more like as a fun side project uh, with still with this goal, because <laughs> we were both kind of sick of the fact that we often found ourselves in a room um, in the IT industry of being the only woman and not to talk about any leadership meetings or so or like even less and that was kind of annoying me and it was at the same time I knew I knew I wanted to get there and I know that I got support and I got encouragement to get there so I was always wondering I'm sure there's other women who want to go there maybe they are just lacking this or there's something in their way and well, I had different reasons so we kind of started with this idea she was doing some mentoring before so she's like let's do this in a more systematic way so we got we rallied up at the time it was uh, at El Passion so we rallied up 11 mentors uh, all women to start the first edition of this mentorship program which was very <laughs> guerrilla style we think we did the landing page in three days and you know we were just uh, the, the thing that took longest was to decide on a name but maybe that's a different story <laughs> Um, so <laughs> I, I, that was a fun, fun one. Anyone who's ever tried to name something and I know you tried to, you were naming your podcast, so you probably know how hard that yeah. is. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah <laughs> <Yes>. definitely. <laughs> and fun actually. Exactly. Um, so yeah, we started and we had those 11 mentors for 15 mentorship spots effectively, and we had 800 applications for those spots. We were at just the first edition, at right? the first edition. So incredible. And we were using basically just Facebook, no ads, nothing, just some Facebook event. And okay, we were contacted by a couple of people who heard about it, who may have written one or two articles in Spider's Web or so. But, you know, that was it was word of mouth. And that was kind of our aha moment where we said, okay, (laughs) clearly there is something there. There are people who who want to do something and want to get into IT, but um, they need extra support and this is how the whole thing started and went uh, rolling basically uh, from the mentorship program by the way i don't think i made that clear the goal of the mentorship program is to support women to find their first job in the it industry so okay. from there we realized that we had 800 applications 15 spots let's say that half of the applications didn't weren't really serious that leaves mm-hmm. 400 people out of which we could help 15. so we were <laughs> wondering what can we do with the rest uh, of those 385 people and we started to build a community basically mostly on facebook through a facebook group where people could interact share knowledge ask questions and this is how the initiative organization or business has been evolving since then that uh, now we have in this community 5,000 women. We run webinars, uh, we run workshops. Um, we have a we have a newsletter with 2,000 over 2,000 readers, and of course we have the mentoring program, which by now has grown. In the last edition, which we closed in April, we had 127 mentees. So that was uh, in total 250 participants in the program. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, and I've also heard that it was more than 2,000 applications, right? Uh, almost 2,000. Yeah, 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 that's crazy. And it's like one mentor actually taking care of two people, right? Or it uh, Right now we have one mentor taking care of one person. Uh, we were experimenting okay. a little bit with having two mentees, but it's it's too much. Uh, it's a bit too much. So. Okay, so and I'm wondering how the company works itself. I mean, I know that you are co-founder, also uh, Alexandra Bis is co-founder, and do you have any uh, permanent workers there or 
all mentors are just uh, part-time people who just step in and then step out. And do you have any team that work full-time supporting website, uh, marketing or something? Full-time is just Alexandra and me, uh, though we have the support. Um, we have two, let's say, part-time supporters, volunteers at the moment. Uh, one is Martina Brodas, she's our community manager. And we have Marta Klimovic, who's helping us with um, marketing strategy. And uh, so they are working with us on a more ongoing basis. And then, of course, we have the mentors who are, they're all volunteers and they are the force behind the mentorship program. So, as I said, in the last edition, it was 120 mentors that supported 127 mentees. Mm. Some had the group mentoring. So I know I said that was one on one, but uh, some had some group mentoring. Uh, and they are doing it all uh, as volunteers. They commit a minimum six hours of mentorship over a period of three months. Okay. Okay. And what kind of skills have you working on with these people? Is it UX, UI, and something from the software engineering, or like which kind of mentorship for, programs? For the mentors, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, last edition we supported 17 career paths so it was quite quite vast two reasons for this the first one is that we want to show the fact that the IT industry is so broad that basically if you have some interest in it and you're open to learn basically there's a place for anyone in the industry regardless of what skills or interests you have so that's the first thing And the second thing, to be honest, we also offer the kind of paths that go in line with the mentors who apply or who become mentors of the program. So uh, for now, we haven't actively looked for specific mentors of a specific path. It kind of happened organically. This will probably change a little bit in the next edition because we have certain paths that, of course, are a little bit more requested by our partners, which are companies. Mm -hmm. So we will probably direct it a little bit more um, with more purpose, let's say. But until now, it was very organic. I'm wondering why when we are, you know, living in a modern world, we are, we are still dealing with such a such kind of issue on the social level that were, you know, came from to, came to us from, I don't know, back a few centuries ago. And yeah, why... Um, this kind of organizations like yours uh, should exist? Good question and very good assessment. We're going to the moon. Why, why do organizations like their IT still need to exist? Fun, yeah. fun fact, I was once accused uh, that my business is benefiting from, uh, from spreading misinformation about the IT industry being uh, unequal and this is the most equal industry in the world. So I always like to say I'd love for their IT to be, uh, you know, not needed. I would love. This, that's my goal, to make us not needed. Uh, but about, apart from that, why is, it, why is it like this? I mean, I think there's some two main reasons if, if you go into it. The first thing, it takes time for such a change um, for the reason that because in the IT industry, you have a lot of career changers. I think it's a great industry for career changers, meaning that you don't necessarily have to st- have studied, I don't know, computer science to become a developer or technical product manager or whatever. Like you mm-hmm. can have studied a lot of different things to enter the industry. And this is great. At the s- same time, there is still, let's say, a correlation between what you study and what you then work on, plus on the fact that some companies will only hire graduates from technical uh, degrees. And unfortunately, the representation of women in those famous STEM or technical degrees is still very low. So we one of the big problems is that basically we need to go back to working with kids, girls, young women, and basically increase the representation in in STEM. That's the one thing. While, of course, get them into STEM, but also make 
those kind of career paths more more how to say accessible more interesting i don't even say more interesting but make them basically believe that this is a path for them that's the first thing and the second thing it's also related to time i think biases are extremely difficult to eliminate they take a lot of time one of the reasons being that again we are we grow up with them through childhood so changing our biases and when we're adults is very difficult so as an example if i told you or anyone else imagine a software developer your first thought like the first second like very very let's say uh, off the top of your mind you would probably think of somebody a man in a hoodie sitting in a dark room and i admit like this happens to me too right so i work in this industry and i catch myself I had the situation. I was very ashamed of, uh, ashamed of myself. Somebody yeah. told me, "Oh yeah, yeah, this, uh, this, and this initiative just got a new managing director." And I was thinking of like, I had this image of a man, and then the next thing was like, "Yeah, she's really great." And I'm like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I just did this." <laughs> so you know, even I'm very aware of this topic, and it happens to me too. So this is something that is really difficult. And if you always think of a software developer as a man, it's harder to make the step as a girl, as a woman, to think like, oh, actually, it's very normal for me to go there, to go there as well. So I think this is one of the other issues that this, this really takes time to be, to be unrooted or to be changed. And last but not least, very frankly, just some people just don't care enough about this problem. And that's fair enough. I don't think that everyone needs to, to be a big, you know, like push for diversity. But it's also true that this problem cannot be solved by few people alone or by women alone. I mean, it can be, but if you know, look at the statistics, they always say, okay, we'll take another 200 years to get to equality. I don't want to wait 200 years. I will be dead. So um, I think that's one of the other problems that this is something that it needs many actors to actually do something about it. And I'm not talking about big things. It can be small things. It can be about the fact just to be aware of biases or when you recruit or when you assess someone or, I don't know, you have a daughter and just be aware that even if you think, I guess my daughter, I want to encourage her to go whatever path she wants. But even then, each of us will do things automatically, which may discourage that. So I think that's a really important point that it needs the involvement of many people. Yeah, for me, actually, I thought that it is a bigger issue in in the corporations for corporate environment and that smaller companies uh, somehow, you know, uh, dealing with this issue. But in the case of corporations and international uh, companies, it is really hard um, to, get be, to, to get promoted because, um, yeah, people just, you know, working there for... 10, 20 years, and then they started some kind of executive positions. Yeah, here, I think in corporate environment, one of the big issues is that, again, it takes time to go to those leadership positions. So as we discussed before, my, my path to leadership positions pretty fast, but I know if I was in a corporate setting, it may take longer. So it also there, to some extent, um, it just it will still take some time to, to get there. Uh, one thing I wanted to note is that Mm-hmm. diversity is a topic that is very big and broad so with their IT we are focusing on let's say gender diversity in the tech industry but of course there's so much more than that there's diversity in terms of socioeconomic backgrounds age big problem of ageism in IT disabilities race um, like how to say like cultural backgrounds yeah you came uh, we're both foreigners in poland right so uh, that's that's another thing like how do you how how is diversity how is the representation of general society in 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 it yeah yesterday i've actually listened to um, to the bbc podcast and the topic was um, diversity as well but um, uh, in case of uh, you know black people black men can't get the job in IT industry uh, in the United States. That's really hard for them. And this guy who was, you know, the guest on this um, podcast said that 
there's a lot of uh, you know situations when uh, recruiters uh, just um, blocked you from getting to the interview just on this CV stage because they you know reading your CV and then they saw that uh, you, you are black so they just you know cut you out do you do think that this is also the issue in Poland uh, in, in inside the industry but you know in case of women I would say both and I think the the problem is the fact that it doesn't happen consciously but the problem is that why they might be discarded is this unconscious bias or these unconscious things and these are much much more difficult to address and change and what could that be is that it's proven also scientifically that um, women are if you see for instance a cv of a man on of a woman it is exactly the same cv you will assess the skills and capabilities of the men higher than those of the women so they generally uh what it actually means is that you need to be more qualified than a man to get the same job because unconsciously uh many people and again i know this happens to me too i have to catch myself on this that we discount or we think that for whatever reason women are less qualified less uh, skilled i don't know so this is of course this is an issue already at the uh the screening stage because you see a cv but this is of course a problem later on at performance evaluation and all these kind of things um where you're basically it affects your career how you're going to and it it compounds right if you're always a little bit slower than somebody else at some point it takes you years longer than to get somewhere or you just earn less because somebody says, okay, I'll promote you, but you're not as good as the other person, so you'll get a little bit less. So I think this is one of the big, uh, one of the big issues. There's studies or even like some people uh, who've experienced it themselves that say, you know, like you submit exactly the example I said, you submit the same CV, you just change the name from a female to a male, and you will get more responses or more job offers as a male. <laughs> I'm laughing because I know there's a funny story about this uh, all-female uh, team, I think it was two founders, who started a company and they were looking for fi financing and they, they were contacting VC funds and they weren't getting any answer. And then they made up a male, uh, a male founder and started sending emails from this imaginary Alex something and suddenly started to receive answers. So uh, yeah, this is this is this unconscious. And again, I don't think anyone does this on purpose. It's just this unconscious yeah. bias issue. Yeah, it is interesting because if this uh, this is a problem that comes for from the you know this unconscious bias, uh, shouldn't we have um, trainings and courses for recruiters and HRs? Um, I don't know some kind of um, special, um, yeah, programs uh, to teach them actually how to to eliminate this bias in insight. Uh, absolutely. So it's called bias, unconscious bias training. It's very common in the U.S. now. Uh, it's quite common in Western Europe. In Poland, I think it's just coming up. Mm, so this is definitely useful, especially I think that the, it's very important to take this first step to be even aware that you have such unconscious bias. Uh, I know I live in my little dare IT bubble, so uh, I'm like, yeah, of course we have this and of course this happens. I catch myself, but if you're not confronted with this or you're not in the topic, you might be surprised. So I think this is really uh, important and I know that there are some providers that do this in Poland. By the way, also Lean In. So this is the initiative started by Sheryl Sandberg from Facebook. They have a whole lots of materials on this unconscious bias. That comes with a bit of an asterisk because, uh, of course, as I said, this first step is super important. But with any behavior change, you need to kind of cement this. So doing this once is great to get you kind of into the topic but if you don't practice this if you're not reminded of it if you don't follow up on it it will not change your behavior so actually consistency here is really 
important. And I would add one additional thing that um, I'm seeing more and more companies do, but I don't think they're doing it enough, is to actually track things, set goals and metrics. So if you're, for instance, very few companies track in the recruitment funnel, how, what's the ratio between males and females? Or, and others, let's say, to keep it uh, like that. So, and then, you know, you get to, then you don't track that, and then you get to the offer stage, and you're like, hmm, strange. Then most notice that we only make offers to males, or we only have, I don't know, we have 90% males in our uh, software team. And actually, when you, if you start to track from the beginning, you start to be aware, like, oh, damn, we only have this many women in the in the funnel, so of course we're not gonna make or like it's just gonna influence the numbers later on, and then you actually start to think, well, how am I how am I gonna increase my funnel, and then you start to do some things. I don't know. You start to do your campaigns, and you realize, oh, maybe these traditional ways in which we want to recruit don't work because the numbers are clearly not increasing. So I think this is one big thing that uh, we're companies are not looking at numbers it's like it's the most basic thing when you for instance i don't know you're tracking your financial results every month right because you want to know where you're going how you're standing so that at the end of the year you know okay this is how we or that's the projection we have for closing the year so it's a similar thing uh it's a similar thing here in connection with actually setting goals um, i know it's hard and this can be scary to say we want to have, I don't know, 30% uh, women in our team when right now, I don't know, you have 15 and you know, how can I even set this goal and what if, if we miss it? But it's like with OKRs, right? You set yourself a goal so that you know where you want to go. Yeah. And what about, you know, what do you think about those uh, programs or internships? Uh, from big tech companies uh, who, you know, looking for some specific race or, um, you know, to w when they are just looking for, for some specific people to fill in the positions just for, you know, diversify their, um, I don't know, their status, right? What do you think about those programs? So ideally, it would be, of course, uh, there wouldn't be a need for this kind of specific targeted uh, ad. So in an ideal world, you would be uh, called or hired literally for your skills. So if you have the same skill, whether you're black, white, female, male, 50 years old or 25, you should get that job offer yeah, with the same culture or whatever. Unfortunately, we are not there and it's still going to take a while to get there. So I'm actually a proponent of these kind of quotas or targeted ads. I know it's a very discussed topic and I know that some people mm, on both sides, right? So some people that's that even let's say you have a quota for women in Germany. Now they introduced a quota for women in yeah. boards. And some women that say, well, I, I don't want to have a special treatment. I don't want to be seen as the woman who got into that position just because of the quota. And the other way around, there's yeah. also people who uh, kind of say this is not the right way to go. I used to be against the quota. I'm a big fan of it now, I have to admit, for the simple reason that we need the quota to get to a stage where we don't need the quota anymore. Meaning that we it's like the chicken and egg problem if... Uh, there okay. isn't enough women in, let's say, boards. It will be harder to get more in because then it's it's not normal, or it or you know it's like this unconscious bias just stays. If you're used to sitting on a board where there's thirty percent or fifty percent women, then it's much more likely that when you're going to choose the next board member, your unconscious bias will be different now because you're used to working in a board okay. uh, in a board like this. So again, the quota or like, I know it's, it's always a little bit uh, difficult because some people say like, imagine there were job ads that say we only accept men. Like that would be like a big, huge scandal. And say so like, yes, of course. But at the same time, it's like saying you have programs, I don't know, scholarship programs, which are targeted at people who come from, let's say, a poor background, right? 
you don't make these programs available to people who can afford it. That's, that's the whole point to get the people who can't afford it to get into those positions to change the, the dynamics. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's always a discussed issue. I think we need it to get to the point where we don't need it anymore because it will be so normal. And maybe one last point is that I cannot imagine that the company will hire somebody who's really horrible into a position just to fill that to fill that position board level like if you're going to go into the board and you got so close to being nominated to go into the board you cannot be a stupid bad unqualified employee it just means that you got a little bit of this extra push to get there which somebody else by the way might also get but it's not an official push because they got there because they know someone because they go and play golf together which is generally a mostly male sport so uh, yeah. this argument that, well, you just got there, you don't have any skills because of just those, that quota, I think, especially on average, isn't, uh, isn't a problem. Yeah. Okay. Got this. So uh, what, what is the plan and what is the general goal of their AT? I mean, do you have like planned for a few years or do you plan to uh make your mentorship program more wider and actually uh i mean include more uh, maybe non-it um positions and career paths or maybe you will also include some other minorities or you will not be concentrated only on gender diversity yeah uh good question so i don't think we have a five-year plan uh, as I said, we have a mission, which is the fact of basically increasing representation of women. And I like very much what Shonda Rhimes says. She is the, she's a black woman, uh, queer woman producer of very famous uh, US TV shows. You may know Grey's Anatomy, uh, producer mm -hmm. and writer, actually. You may know Scandal. And she is known, apart from being, of course, standing out because also the whole film industry is very white and male dominated. So she definitely stands out and her shows also stand out because she brought in, for instance, lead character, female black lead characters in Scandal, such, uh, for example. And what she says is that she's not trying to make TV more diverse. She's trying to make TV more normal so that tv represents the way that society is and society is that mm -hmm. women are 50 percent of society in some societies even a little bit more so our goal is to make sure that the it industry represents society at all levels of leadership or uh, like from junior to leadership so that's kind of our our goal and how we're going to get there in terms of tools we're figuring out a bit on the way of course we have this mentorship program so um Right now, we're focusing on the starters. Um, we have been thinking mm -hmm. about creating a mentorship program to get into your first leadership positions, because that's kind of the first hurdle is to get into the industry, but the second hurdle is then to get into leadership positions. So this is kind of okay. what we are thinking about. We will not, probably not, never say never, but probably not go into non-IT uh, sectors for two reasons. The first one is that we believe that the IT sector is extremely powerful to influence other sectors from the perspective mm -hmm. that IT software, it's basically impacting our whole lives and it's just going to get more. So if we have kind of equal representation there, we believe it will kind of trickle into other industries. And the second reason, very practically, this is the industry that we know. This is the, the, the we know how the, how it works. We, we worked in it, we still work in it, we know how the recruitment works, etc. So I don't think we will be expanding. Uh, for now, the focus is definitely on the IT industry. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about, you know, if it's, um, if it's some kind of educational problem, as you mentioned before, uh, shouldn't we have, uh, you know, some special curriculums in, in school, in university, to learn how, what is the diversity problem? What is the ecological problems? Um, yeah, to, to understand those biases uh, and to deal with them uh, started as we are 
when, when, when we are young, actually. Um, yeah, because uh, f- for people who are, you know, 40 years old, it's really harder to accept some kind of, I don't know, new things, let's say. And I know also that there's a lot of programs, uh, at least uh, f- about the ecological education, that uh, schools can just join to them and it is completely free. So they will be provided with uh, a lot of uh, ma- educational materials. And in Poland, I've checked, it was like 20 schools, near near 20 schools joined this kind of programs. And it is really sad because uh, even when this kind of information is completely free for you and you don't need to do anything. You will just, uh, you know, uh, create a request and then you will receive all the materials. So all you need is to start this um, curriculum in, in your school. And even when it is completely free, people just don't want yeah. this. I completely agree. I had the same, I had the same experience. I'm so angry at my, uh, at my school that we didn't have any, coding classes because i i picked it up a little bit uh later after university and i loved it and i'm actually fun fact i'm doing a i'm starting a three months intensive coding boot camp in the fall <laughs> because i just i just this opened this whole universe to me and like i would have loved to be a developer or a software engineer i would have loved it but it i didn't i wasn't in touch with it in my school my parents didn't know anything about it, so they also didn't get me close to it. So I completely agree that in this sense, schools play a huge role in affecting in affecting this. One thing to add is that I think that the whole discourse about ecology or maybe ecology is a little bit different, but diversity. I'm my, it's my impression that it's in particular it got particularly picked up in the last few years anyway. So, of course, we had the whole feminist movement in the 70s and there's always been a feminist movement. But I think that the fact that diversity, so including a gender diversity and equality and other, like for instance, the whole LGBTQT, um, like equality for uh, different uh, genders and who you love, basically, this is something that I think got gained momentum in the last few years. So I am also like, I think I was trying to be mindful of the fact that maybe this wasn't a topic so much at the time, but still I completely agree. And it's shocking that as a school, you could do this, you could get this for free, right? Like it's the only thing you need to do is have a little bit of interest to it and a bit of effort to include it in your curriculum. That's it. But still somehow people don't care. And this is, coming back to what I told you before that I think that's one of the big problems is that there's still too many people who don't care enough they're maybe not against it if you ask them are you for taking care of the environment or learning about it or are you for gender equality they will say yeah yeah definitely or yeah I don't have anything against it but they don't have that motivation to do something about it and then that makes everything so much slower of course yeah I completely agree with that and I think that you know it is also um, because uh, in our time it is really hard to um, maybe to think about something that is out of your personal life because we are too you know too busy with our own lives so we don't see anything that is around us uh, so yeah and uh, also uh, last few days ago I checked the report from some um, hiring company and they've reported that in Poland, um, men have a you know higher salary than a woman. And why is that? Why why is this happening? Why why? What do you think about this? Well, <laughs> why I ask myself the same. You know, like why? Tell me why. Um, uh, talking about the reasons, I believe there's two. Or looking at it, uh, there's two. The first one is coming back to what I said before, that we somehow as a society value skills of women less. Even if they have the same skills, we perceive them, sorry, we perceive them to have less skills or to be less good. So then when it's a matter of assigning a salary, which is usually in relation to performance um, or 
if you enter a job to the perceived future performance or perceived skills you bring on board, because you perceive them to be less valuable or less advanced, you will give them a lower salary. So this is the first thing, and this is going through first hire, performance review, etc. That's the first. And the second issue is about negotiation. So um, it's shown, it's proven that women just negotiate less. Uh, I would say they're on one hand taught less, and I'm not saying that men are taught to negotiate, but it's say as a society more normal or more accepted even as boys that they will say no i don't want it or i don't accept it or i want more well often women who negotiate are perceived as too demanding too bossy too something 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 so if you negotiate as a man again this unconscious bias often is perceived as something good while as women it's perceived as something bad uh, and I had even a friend of mine, she was telling me she was negotiating a, she was negotiating a CMO position and she was negotiating her salary. And then when she got on board, she got the feedback that one of the things they didn't like about her was the fact that she negotiated her salary too much. They didn't like this. And it was an interesting thing because on one hand, I'm like, this is great to know that you get an employee on board who's really good at negotiating. They will negotiate deals for you for you know for the company and the other thing is like what does that even mean negotiate too much if you didn't want them to pay them this much you wouldn't have made that offer so like what does that even mean you negotiated too much so that's an interesting <laughs> thing yeah and you know i think that the solution here that will work actually is that mm -hmm, we will just you know show up all the salaries across the company so people could start trust each other because yeah this is a real problem i think when you don't know how much money uh, your colleague get for the same job right doing for, for doing the same job as you and this is a problem and i have own experience when i worked in my previous company when we opened all the salaries it was really beautiful experience because uh, people started you know uh, trust more to each other they've also started you know to a bit of controlling like because uh you know when when, when your colleague knows how many uh how much money you get they could also some kind of you know check how how you work and you you have this feeling that you, some kind of additional responsibility so i think this is a great solution and it will help in the future to a lot of yeah. companies yeah that's true i would add that one thing that also always helps is to have some kind of clear salary level so as we had a, a passion for the tech team with this formula so you just have levels and you don't negotiate your salary and you, if you get promoted this is the salary that you get that is a big step forward of course you still need to take into consideration that whether you move forward or at which level you actually enter the company that needs to be set. And this is where still you may run into this unconscious bias where you're like, it's the same skills, it's the same, let's say values, it's the same value this person will bring to the company. But because of this unconscious bias, you're like, oh no, we believe it's less. So you may enter this person on a lower level. So this is something you still need to be uh, aware of, but you can also eliminate this need for negotiation uh, if you have these uh, levels. It's difficult to do when you have a small team because you just have too much variety in roles. So I don't know, you have a marketing team, you have four different roles that on the market also have different salaries. It's difficult, like you can't create a path of salaries for this one position only. So sometimes it's hard, but I think especially for bigger teams where roles are more standardized, I think this is definitely a really good thing to have. Yeah, and, and also one thing that should exist when a company decides to open all the salaries is the promotional system, right? It should be equal, it should be clear for everyone. So, yeah, people just, you know, started trust each other and then they also participate in how salaries um, going up. So they should have, a, I don't know, right to decide this. So this is very important, yeah. I think. 
Yeah, I, I don't remember which company this was. I mean, I know there's a company called Buffer. There's like this social media scheduling tool. They also have all their salaries uh, public. And there was another company, uh, Berlin-based, I don't remember the name, where also it was the team deciding on each, like basically people's promotions and salaries. And I thought that was always an interesting um, concept because how do you avoid the fact that you will not like that it's still not the loudest who gets the most from the perspective that maybe somebody feels that they deserve more but because they're shy or because of something else they will not they will kind of say oh i'm okay with this but well actually they feel they should get more or they they're not okay with this so i think it's a very interesting dynamic how to still keep out i mean person like different personality traits so that it's not the loudest or the unconscious bias who even decides in a team context. So, yeah, we, we had a lot of cases like this when, you know, people too shy to ask for a high salary. And often when people are shy, they are not shy in a smaller group of people when the, you know, this uh, circle, circle of trust is already built. So we had a lot of uh, smaller teams and we decided that teams will gather all the budget requ requirements for the salaries and then they will show it up for the whole company so in this kind of situations when someone asked for for a bigger amount in inside a small group it was really helpful because uh, then you know people don't need to go for for the, for the whole company and ask for this right so yeah it was it, it was helpful actually to have these small groups Okay, so um, I have no questions regarding regarding their IT, and yeah, I have yeah, I, I see a lot of books on your background. Um, are you reading right now something? Uh, I am reading something right now. Uh, it's, it's a it's a biography of Indira Gandhi, so the uh, Indian Prime Minister of some some decades back. Um, yeah, I like to. I like. I like biographies very much. Yeah. Uh, actually, if I may jump in here, that you had one question that I really liked uh, that I wanted to throw in, if we can touch on that, and that is the challenge of this kind of business, like their IT. Um, yeah. Because as I said, we're building their IT as a social business, so it's a business with a social mis mission, and one of the things that is quite challenging and to be honest, drives me a little crazy, is this really strange notion that we have in our society that companies and organizations that do good for society shouldn't make much money and provide services for free. And that people who work there shouldn't really make a lot of money because, well, they're helping uh, society. And for me, this is a crazy notion because I think that these kind of businesses should make more money than anyone else. Uh, that is doing it just, you know, just for the sake of profit. So this is actually one of the challenging things that we're facing, that we're trying to find a balance between, you know, building a business, building a viable business, building a business that can pay good wages to employees, to us as founders, um, but at the same time, you know, kind of avoiding this uh, <laughs> backlash of being accused that we're just you know, uh, how to say this, not greenwashing, but pretending like we are doing something for good. Well, we actually are, and this is our main main mission. So this is definitely challenging. Yeah, this is crazy. And the craziest part of it is actually when you're trying to do something good for society, probably most of the people will not trust you because, you know, big amount of others are trying to use those charity organizations to actually really greenwashing yeah so uh, a lot of stories actually connected to those kind of organizations but of course it is bad because uh, right now in our like day-to-day -day, um, I know how to say it mm, environment we should have a bit of trust actually in this kind of uh, companies who are trying to do something good trying to do actually better tomorrow for us yeah, yeah. 
I couldn't agree more. So coming back to your other question, I I will answer that if we still have a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. So how do I keep motivated in my day to day? Uh, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes it's tough. Uh, sometimes it's very tough. Um, the one thing that helps is for sure the belief in our mission as their IT. So I really believe that we are doing something that is worth doing and that I want to do. And actually a little kind of not fun fact, but sometimes when I'm quite in a low stage or I'm wondering like, what the heck am I doing? I ask myself, if I had a lot of money, like I won't have to worry about anything, let's say money-wise, what would I change in my professional thing? Would I still be doing what I'm doing? And uh, actually my answer is yes. I would probably take some time. I would have less, you know, a little bit less pressure to make it uh, work. I would maybe go a little bit on a trip once COVID allows, but effectively my answer is like, yes, I would be doing this. So when I'm really low, this kind of gives me an additional motivation that, okay, it's just tough right now, or we didn't have the success we wanted, or actually some somebody annoyed me, but this kind of gives me that, that question, gives me a little bit of a, at least a peace of mind. Uh, one other thing that gives me motivation is positive feedback we get from our mentors, mentees, the community. So actually seeing that we did help people change their life by changing their careers. And this is something very, uh, yeah, very uplifting. So sometimes when I have a bad day, I go and read uh, some of the comments. That's definitely a motivating factor. And one other thing that's very useful. So we're, as co-founders, we're two people. So usually when one has a down, the other is doing okay. So it really helps to have a partner, a business partner in crime that, <laughs> that helps you get over the, the tough times, understands what you're going to or through and kind of like catches you or catches me when, when I'm down and the other way around. Um, and if I can give one last note of maybe not advice, but another thing that, I, that my fiance taught me when it's really tough, he asks me, well, just imagine what's the worst that can happen? Like really the worst. And then when I think about it, usually the worst is not so bad after all. And that uh, usually gives another uh, kind of kick to, okay, let's keep going. It's okay. This is a good strategy actually to, you know, solve these kind of problems. So definitely I should try as well. Um, okay, so I have another question regarding uh, your time management. So I know that being a CEO, um, it is really hard to, you know, find time for any kind of meetings that are not work related or something. Um, so, yeah, the question is, how did you manage your own time? Do you have like planning for the week or for the day or something else? Yeah, if you can share. I have my uh, holy weekly planning. So every Monday, this is how I start my week. So I'm going, I'm kind of uh, summarizing my previous week. And I'm thinking, what will I be doing this week? I look at my uh, calendar. I look at the things like the priorities. This usually takes me an hour or so. So it's quite, quite intense. That's the first thing. Uh, second thing, then every day I do daily planning. So it, it's much shorter, of course, but I actually write down, okay, these are the four most important points that I want to get done today. I already prioritize them. So I know how I'm going to address them. And I also summarize a little bit, like, what did I do yesterday? So th do that on a daily basis. And uh, sometimes I'm a little bit less disciplined on this, I have to admit. But generally, I'm time boxing my tasks in my calendar. So if I, I do my daily planning and I know I have these and these tasks uh, for today. So, for instance, today I know that after our call, I have a sales call. And then I have three time boxes to prepare some offers. And they are in my calendar. So A, and I prepare this in the morning. So A, I don't every time that I'm done with the task think, okay, what do I have to do next? I just know I did the thinking once. 
And it also allows me not to over plan because I can actually visually see how much I can do uh, in a day. And this is a trick, by the way, I learned in one of my favorite books of all times called Deep Work, which I recommend to anyone and everyone. Um, this is a great book about, I mean, time management, being more focused, more happy with your work. And this is what I learned there. And one other thing that I'm currently trying and I'm liking, I like it very much. I was reading on LinkedIn a post about somebody who said, no, that one of the most important things they ever learned from their manager is the fact that we always have hundred tasks to do. We, every day we only have time to do about five. We have to choose those five and forget and not feel bad about the rest of the 95. And that actually forgetting about the 95 is the hardest part of all. So what I'm currently trying for a few weeks now, when I'm doing my weekly planning on Monday, I, I'm selecting 25 tasks and I'm allo allocating them directly to the days of the week. And that's it. And I have to kick everything else out. And that's incredibly difficult, but it's actually really great. It's worked really well. I haven't overplanned. I'm actually more productive because I'm more focused. I don't have this million things going on in my head. So it takes some effort and it's not, it's not easy, but I actually recommend trying it. Yeah. And, you know, I remember um, the quote by Steve Jobs, actually, that about how to, you know, prioritize your actually products, uh, features, I don't know, tasks for the day. He said that uh, people think focus means saying yes to the things that we've got to focus on, actually. But that's not what it means at all, because um, it means saying no to the hundred other good ideas that we have on the table. And we should be carefully, actually. Yeah. Totally. It's hard. It's extremely difficult. I have a very hard time to let go. Uh, but one other concept I came across, it's called the fuck it bucket. So, <laughs> which I love. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because I don't know, we tend to, it's like with a backlog, right? Like you do your things, you always have the most important task first, but then somehow you always have some ideas of things that you could do. They're not an urgent or they're not important. So they end up in your list. And then you end up with this huge list and it's giving me anxiety to know, oh my God, I have this many lists. I will never finish it. So once in a while I go through it and some things just end up in the fuck it bucket and then they're out of my head and I just feel much better. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, that's an amazing idea, actually. I should definitely have one for myself because uh, it is probably, um, I guess, uh, feels really good when you throw something from your list of to do exactly and you just let go and then it's out of your ram <laughs> yeah. okay natalie thank you so much thank you for being today on my podcast it was really nice to have you and to have a conversation with you it was really interesting one so i looking forward to have you in the future thank you Thank you, Igor. It was all my pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to some more conversations in the future. <laughs>